Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Amy Philbrook. Amy is Executive Vice President for Service with LPL Financial, a role she just recently started. She previously worked at Robinhood in roles focused on customer care, operations, and learning and development. And prior to that, she spent more than 25 years in a variety of roles at Fidelity Investments. Amy is also a public speaker and thought leader, including for CNN, the Society of Human Resources Management, Biz Women, and others. She works in the Fort Worth, Texas area. Amy, welcome. It's great that we're getting to do the show together today. Thank you, JR. It is a total honor and a pleasure for me. Oh, honor goes both ways. So congrats on your new role. Do you want to Start there and tell our audience about LPL and what you're doing for them. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, this is my third week with them. So I really am brand new and deep in the learning curve already. For those who don't know, LPL is a broker dealer here in the United States that has a sole focus on serving financial advisors. And what was really exciting to me was the chance to work for an organization that supports others in their journey to grow their business and be amazing for their clients. I haven't had that privilege before, so it's yet another twist in the road for my career. And that's really why I was excited about the opportunity. I'm gonna run all of customer service for them. So customer service and customer care operations, very familiar territory for me, but the client base and focusing on business owners and entrepreneurs and folks growing their practice is totally new. Well, that will be fun. How did this come about? How did you first hear about the role? Like lots of great opportunities, it came through good relationships. There was a Fidelity alum that I had had the privilege of working with during our Fidelity days, who is an MD at LPL. And interestingly, when they were talking about filling this role, they talked about wanting somebody who had seen the scale and quality of a Fidelity-like company, but could run at the pace of a really innovative startup. And having Fidelity and Robinhood on my resume, I kind of fit that bill. Yeah. What else appealed to you in terms of the opportunity? The people. I'm never going to take an opportunity where I don't have high confidence that I'm working with really collaborative, well-intended people. And I kicked the tires pretty hard on the culture there. And I found that it held up under scrutiny. Things like diversity, inclusion, development, career paths, mobility, We're all top of mind at all levels of leadership, including the CEO. So that was really appealing. And then, like I said, it offers up a whole new learning opportunity for me. This is probably, I mean, it's early days, but this is probably one of the best fits where my experience 
can create immediate value for them, but they can immediately welcome me to a new learning space as well. You're a few weeks in, as you mentioned. How are you yeah. thinking about the first 90 days and where you want to focus your energy? Well, I'll tell you, I hit the ground running. I spent week one, Monday through Friday in San Diego, California, meeting with as many people, partners, leaders, and my people as I could. Week two, I spent Monday through Friday on the ground in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing the same. For me, the first 90 days is all about maximizing engagement. So I want to hear points of view of the business from the C-suite. I want to hear it from my service associates who are talking to customers on the end of the phone all day, every day. So it's a lot of learning and listening. It's also about connecting dots. And what I'm finding is you have this beautiful opportunity when you're new, right, to ask questions and try to connect dots for yourself. And it turns out you uncover some aha and you create some aha moments for others. So everything from talking to corporate real estate about site strategy and equipment strategy and connecting dots to our human capital teams about the learning process and speed to proficiency and how those two things work together. So every opportunity I have to try to vocalize where dots may or may not connect is not only strengthening my learning and accelerating my journey, it's already creating leverage opportunities for others. Yeah. I mean, I certainly remember when I started at Janice Henderson, it's been a little over two years. I went in, I asked a ton of questions. I did a ton of meetings. You're in massive fact gathering mode, you're reading everything you can get your hands on. But even just in the questions that you ask, right, you're kind of giving people who have been there longer, a bit of a sense of what is somebody with a fresh set of eyes want to know about this operation, mm-hmm. right? Or this business and what are their questions are about and what are their observations? And I spent a lot of time in those early meetings kind of sharing my thoughts. You're always be speaking too soon or out of turn before you really have yeah. your fact base together. But I think if you do it in the right way, it actually, it really helps because then they start to open up a bit more and you share kind of what you're learning and how they're thinking about things and things that have been on their mind. And that's been good since then. There have been three things I've tried in the last two weeks that have served me well in that because I worry too about like, you don't want to come in and be the person who says, well, we did it this way. Yeah. So I I did three things. I recruited two people who are going to be in a lot of meetings with me. And I said, let's have a little signal for when I'm oversharing or overstepping. So you know the culture here better than me. You be my kind of manager, right? My handler to tell me like, pull back here or keep going, lean in more. The second thing I did is I started asking people like, what's interesting to you about that? So when somebody's talking about something, they're going deep on a particular point, I find I get, I unlock a lot of the history and the culture and the context. If I say, you're spending a lot of time on this, what makes this so interesting from where you sit in the business? And that's not a question you hear a lot, right? You hear a lot of like, we're spending a lot of time on this. What does it mean for me? But when you ask somebody, what's interesting about this for you, it really opens them up, I have found in a beautiful way. And then the last thing is I'm really trying to moderate when I try to say, based on experiences I've had, here are some of the things that have worked well. How do you think that would play here? Rather than saying like at Fidelity or at Robinhood, we did it this way or that way. There's always danger, as you say, in the, well, when I was at such and such place, yeah. Yeah. What else? You mentioned some of the diligence that you had done to get yourself comfortable that this was the right place for you. What else did you do once you had the offer, everything was agreed to get yourself prepared before you actually started? I took off to Italy and spent a couple of weeks clearing my head, hiking in the mountains of Northern Italy, 
I was in a situation in my career I'd never been in before. So I actually resigned from Robinhood and wrapped up my tenure with them in July with no plans to even look for a job for the rest of this year. It was going to be the first like fallow period in my career by design. That wasn't a maternity leave, which for me is two decades in the rear view mirror. And it was a difficult decision to make. I'm somebody who likes to do a lot of my identity and self-worth can be tied up in what I'm contributing professionally to an organization. So to make that decision was difficult, but what I found was I had a little bit of space and time. I didn't look for a job, but certainly opportunities and interesting ideas came my way. And because I had some space and some silence, I had real clarity real quickly about what mm. I needed what I would tolerate and what I wanted to leave behind forever. So I really, when I accepted the offer, I spent a lot of time reminding myself, why was this the right opportunity? What are my must-haves? What are my okay to tolerate? And what are my boundaries going to be? And I really just got grounded in those things and tried to make sure I had a plan for when there's a crisis, how am I going to hold to these values and these boundaries? When things are going great, How am I going to curb the temptation to overextend? That time was really important and really valuable. And I mean, again, early days, two weeks in, but I feel like I'm starting off in the right place. And two things you mentioned that really resonate with me. One is there is value in just giving yourself forced time off, right? In between jobs, when you have the luxury of being able to afford it, because it does give you the ability to step back to do a bit of reflection, to think about what you want in your life and in your professional life and in your personal life. And it's a lot easier to do that when you don't have the constant inbound, right? I mean, I've Mm kind of had that twice in my career where I've had a bit of time to reflect a bit on what I wanted to do next. And it's been very helpful. The other thing you mentioned, I think is interesting is the idea of like what you really want, what you'll tolerate, what is a deal breaker, right? And I think having that clarity on those things in particular, great screening mechanism for thinking about potential companies and potential opportunities, roles within those companies. Because if you know what you want, then it is a two-way street, right? This idea of interviewing. And a lot of times people are just so anxious to get a job. And sometimes financials definitely play into that. But if you aren't in that situation, it really does you a world of good to be clear on what you're looking for. And then you can measure everything against that as opposed to a, a vaguer sense of what you're really after. It's a luxury for sure. I don't think it's any mystery that I've been working for 30 years before I was in a position to take this opportunity and view my next move from this strategic of a lens. I wish this is something that we could create for everybody periodically and much earlier in career. Yeah. I mean, we don't really have extended holiday time in the US. We don't have sabbaticals in most companies, but there is some value sometimes to getting those breathers, right? And a chance to reset. For sure. You spent a long time at the beginning of your career at Fidelity, like a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people have stayed at Fidelity for a very long time. When you think back to like those early days when you were fresh out of school and mm-hmm. in your first role or two, what do you remember about learning about yourself and the world of work back then? Well, it was certainly different than I thought it was going to be. I started at the end of a 1-800 customer service number at Fidelity. I learned really quickly communication skills were going to be my most important currency. I feel lucky that I fell into that role because having to talk to, empathize with, understand, and take action 
for anyone who can show up next at the end of your phone line and you have no idea really what you're going to need to be prepared for, tremendous dexterity of communication skills. So I feel super lucky that I started my career in service. I also learned that you have to self-actualize your career path. People are not going to hand you things, no matter how good you are at your current role. I'm curious by nature. I think one of my stronger skills is asking good questions. And I started asking a lot of questions. And some of those questions were things like, can I shadow you for a day? I'll use one of my PTO days to shadow you because I don't know how else I'm going to learn about what somebody who doesn't sit right next to me does all day long. And I learned that people were really open to that. I had a mentor who talked about R before T, relationship before task. I would never go to somebody and say, I want a job on your team. What do I need to do to get there? But I would go to somebody and say, I'm really interested in your area and learning more about it. Is there someone on your team I could shadow for an hour that you think would show me how things work here? And that's putting the relationship and my interest in them ahead of what I want, the task of of landing a new job. So I learned really early on, be self-actualized, ask questions, and don't be afraid to spend my own time and energy learning about the places I want to go. Yeah. And you've spent at this point, 30 years in financial services. And when you are on the other end of the phone line, right? And you're talking to somebody who's taking a hardship loan against their 401k or is having to process a death event as the surviving beneficiary. And I always really really valued the time that I spent listening to phone calls when I worked at Fidelity. And I've done a little bit of that at Janice as well, because you really do get a sense of like, these are real people out there who are really saving for children's education, for retirement. It's it's easy to forget that sometimes and to get caught up in the internal swirl of things going on. But for me, those times spent listening to those phone calls, they ground you and they remind you of the why, right? And I'm sure you've carried that with you over the years. Well, I was telling my boss today, I love to take escalations because that's where you really learn what matters to the customer. And I can't wait to talk to the clients at LPL more. So I've been here for two weeks. I've talked to three of our end customers, advisors directly already, engaged in some relationship building. And the more time I can spend on the front line with our service teams or talking directly to our end customers, the better I'm going to be able to serve the organization. Very true. So coming back to Fidelity for a minute, so you were there for 25 years, you had 14 yeah. different roles by my count on <laughs> LinkedIn and your roles span, and I have to look at the list, customer service, client relations, marketing and sales, risk and compliance, technology, QA, HR, mm-hmm. DEI, that's a lot of different things. It's so a lot of different things. all of these different roles, how many were situations where somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, I have a great next role for you. And how many of them were roles that you pursued? I'd actually add a third category, how many were roles that I created. And I would say it was equally a third, a third, a third. And you might think, well, the shoulder tap didn't come until the later years. That actually wasn't true. What I found was the shoulder taps came more often earlier in my career. It's easy to differentiate yourself from the herd if you're an execution superpower, right? If you're like, I will outwork, out hustle and outlearn everybody around me you can become visible pretty quickly and get those taps on the shoulder. The midpoint of my career is where role creation came into play. I would have ideas and I would pitch them and I would say, well, who's going to bring this to life and why not me? And so some of my roles in sales, some of my roles in technology, some of my roles in, in sales operations came about from 
pitching an idea, seeing a need, figuring out a way to solve it, pitching an idea, and then actually turning that into my role. And it's been later in my career where I've actually pursued things. I remember telling my boss at the time when the head of diversity and inclusion for Fidelity announced that he was going to retire. I said, I want that job and I need your advocacy and support in order to get it. And he was like, why that job? I said, because it's going to be important and I can make a difference. And so I really had to go on a campaign to land that role. There wasn't a lot in my background that would suggest that that was a natural next step for me, but I really didn't feel like I had the credibility and the currency until this latter part of my career to go after roles that might not seem like a natural fit. What was important to you otherwise in picking the roles that you chose to do next? I wanted to know that I could create value and impact And I wanted to know that I could learn something. It was as simple as that. So it needed to be new territory for me, but territory where I knew my skill set and my approach and my processes would add value. And there was one pivotal development experience in my career that unlocked that for me. It was 2010, 2011. I got to go through the Stanford Design School course on design thinking. And I Mm -hmm. really fell in love with it. It's a very human-centered, but practical, tactical, problem-solving methodology. I learned as much about it as I could. I joined an extended team of people around the firm that would teach it, coach it, lead engagements outside of their business unit. And once I locked in on mastering a methodology that could bring value almost anywhere, all of a sudden I had the currency to carry with me to say, I can go to almost any area of the firm and add value because I've got a methodology and a process that works. Yeah. I mean, certainly that idea of like customer journey mapping, right? Which is closely linked to design thinking. We were doing a little bit of that when we were working together there. And if nothing else, it forces you to put yourself in the shoes of your customer, right? Design thinking is the same thing. It's like, it's a kind of an empathetic way to be thinking about how to design products, how to improve products, services. And I've Certainly have taken it in my different roles over the years as a tool that I pull out somewhat often to understand how we're delivering service. Yeah. I spent about 10 years at Fidelity once I acquired that skill set where I wrote my own employment contract. You know, we don't have employment contracts like that, but every time I got a new role or I worked with a new manager, I would say I spend 20% of my time working outside of our department, facilitating design thinking engagements for other areas of the business. But in return, here's the value I bring back if you agree to let me do that. New relationships, new connections, new leverage points, new understandings of the customer from different angles. I never had a single manager turn that down. And that was that's another strategy I coach people on that I coach and mentor today is like, what can you uniquely do outside of your own front yard that will bring back added value, not just for you, but for the team that you're serving as well? Definitely. What are some of the other things that you did to position yourself for success when you started a new role? You have a lot of practice at this, you know. I do have a lot of practice at this. Well, I'm a disciple of the first 90 days, that that management book, the first 90 days. So your first 30 days, you meet as many people as you can, both customers, whether they're internal customers or external customers, as well as business partners, as well as team members. And then you get really strategic about who are my advocates? Who are my champions? Who do I need to win over? Who's going to be in the adversary column? And what's my relationship building approach going to be for folks as they fall in these different columns? 
And when I say adversary, it's always just, we're going to be competing for resources or we're going to be competing for priorities. It's never more adversarial than that. And then I structure my relationship management approach. The other thing is get really, really clear on what success looks like. And what I found both somebody new being hired and somebody who hires a lot of people, usually we have one idea, right? This is what success is going to look like for you in this role. And these are the key metrics and KPIs or stretch goals. 60 days in, you got to revisit that conversation because both of you have changed your minds. So I learned that early on as well. So I always make sure we have the defining success conversation at least three times, me and my boss in those first 90 days. And that's been really beneficial as well. A lot of people like have that conversation once and it's kind of set it and forget it. Six months down the road, you're like, oh crap, I'm not even working on that stuff anymore. Is that okay? So have that conversation early and often has been another thing that I've learned. At some point along the way, you were a new manager. Curious to hear what that experience was like for you and what surprised you most about being a first-time manager. So my first manager role was as a team manager of a phone team for Fidelity Investments. It was an incredible experience because I was now managing people that were doing what I had myself done. So you're never as set up with expertise, subject matter, expert knowledge as you are in your first manager job, because you usually get promoted to run something that you used to do. And I had that blessing and that curse of having done the job of the team that I was now leading. So instant street cred, deep subject matter expertise. You don't get that later in life, in your career, you end up managing things that you haven't necessarily done. You don't know backwards and forwards. I think what surprised me was that that subject matter expertise was limiting when it came to being a good leader for my people. And so I made the mistake of over-directing, overdoing. And I think it's Liz Weissman wrote multipliers. I was a rescuer. Mm -hmm. I would parachute in and solve the problems because I could. And I was very uncomfortable letting my people struggle and experience the pain that's necessary sometimes to facilitate growth. So if I could do one do-over, well, I have a do-over right now. I don't know LPL's business as well, but I'm managing a very tenured, experienced team. And what I'm really excited to test myself on is, can I raise a bar for them? Can I give them new challenges and new frames of reference to look at the business through? but then let Hmm. them struggle where they need to struggle in order for them to elevate even higher. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that a lot of first-time managers struggle with, particularly in the situation that you were in, because you'd done the job, right? As you said, you knew it backwards and forwards, and it's easy to become the rescuer in those situations. And there's times where you have to just say, okay, well, what are you going to do about that? Like, what do you think you should do? Right. And you sort of keep the burden on them to figure out how to solve the problem because that's the way that they grow. But it it's a bit counterintuitive, I think, for most first-time managers. You get promoted because of how much you could do. And so it's mm-hmm. really uncomfortable to sit on your hands, but there are many, many opportunities that come if you can just be a little bit patient, sit on your hands. Yeah. Well, and sometimes you need, like I think about deliberately waiting to respond on certain emails, right? It's a bit like not being the first one to jump in to talk in a meeting, right? You want the discussion to flow, whether it's in an email or in a room. Yeah. And you got to let your team kind of chime in on things themselves first, but it's hard. I think we all have a bit of the rescuer in us, right? Absolutely. So then you went on to Robinhood after a long run at 
fidelity it had to have been somewhat of a shock to the system to move to a smaller place a place that was in hyper growth mode at the time yeah it was exciting it was really exciting definitely like jumping into the cold water in terms of shock to the system everything was different i didn't even know how to use the basic operating system on the computer cuz they used google suites and i had never mm. worked with that they used slack right. there was no email and most meetings were 15 minutes i mean talk about a dramatically different operating dynamic but that's what I wanted. I remember when I was interviewing there, I was talking to the COO at the time, Gretchen Howard, who's a wonderful mentor and coach for me now. And she had, fortunately, she had worked at Fidelity back in the day. So she kind of knew the culture shock I was going to experience. And I told her, I'm looking for an adventure. And mm -hmm. all of those different dynamics were part of contributing to that sense of adventure. So it was culture shock, but it was also an incredibly collaborative organization. And to use her words, high execution with high humility, high intelligence with high humility. I really found that to be true. There was nowhere that I couldn't turn to ask for help. It was yeah. about me being humble enough to ask. And I had to ask a million questions a day for probably the first six to nine months. Like it's a very technology oriented company. They speak a different language. They operate in different systems and being humble enough to ask those questions, but ask them quickly and do a lot of self-serve, right? Like I would spend a lot of late nights digging for information and reading every Google doc and figuring it out. The other thing is they did have an operating manual that was based on a really cool book called Working Backwards. It's the Amazon book, right? And it's the book about how Amazon runs or used to run. And Robinhood had a bunch of influential leaders that had an Amazon background and they really mm -hmm. worked and leveraged that methodology. So finding that resource early on and understanding that I had to take it seriously really helped accelerate my integration. What were some of the ways that you've felt like the cultures of Fidelity and Robinhood were similar and how are they different? Definitely similar in terms of customer obsessed. Everything was about the customer at both firms. Definitely similar in the fact that they would leverage platform and systems level thinking and solutions to scale. Neither of those are firms that solve a problem by throwing more bodies at it, right? You've got mm. to find a way to automate and solve at scale. They were very similar in those respects. I would say where they were really different was the tactics of how they got work done. So for example, Robinhood was all Slack, no email, and it was not a meeting heavy culture. There were also no slides or PowerPoint presentations, mm. but on the flip side, there were docs, right? Deep, deep written narratives with lots and lots of collaboration and commentary. So very Amazon centric tool. So those things were very different. And then Access to the CEO, one of the benefits of Robinhood being a smaller company is anybody had access to the C-suite and everybody got to hear directly from the CEO and the C-team on a weekly basis, highly unscripted, very personal and intimate dialogue, very different culturally from a curated, structured environment like Fidelity. How did you have to adapt your own leadership style? I had to get really comfortable with casualness. And I had to get really comfortable with a highly engaged, highly empowered workforce who felt like they could push back on any executive about anything at any time. 
I found myself on the hot seat in situations that I didn't have any opportunity to prepare for in front of the entire company on multiple occasions. And that caused me to raise my game. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience, an uncomfortable experience, but a very enriching learning experience. And then the C-suite, they were the most data and metric driven people you couldn't go in there and talk about anything that you didn't have numbers to back up. And that raised my game on analytics as well. Yeah, I can imagine in particular that that casual environment where people can push back. I mean, that had to have been really, really different. I contemplated taking a job at Bridgewater at one point when I was leaving Fidelity. And that was another place where the idea was that anybody can tell anybody what they're really thinking. And, yeah. and going back and forth to Connecticut for the interviews, I'd be sitting in the car thinking like, can I see myself in this kind of environment? And in the end, it didn't work out anyway, but it just, cultures can be really different and things that made you successful in one may not work and vice versa. We talk about organ rejection a lot, right? At every company, like there are certain people that you bring in and the risk of organ rejection gets higher and higher, the more responsibility you carry. I actually really enjoyed the challenge of adapting to such a different culture. That doesn't mean that I decided it was the right culture for me long-term. I mean, obviously I made a decision to exit that culture and culture was a part of that reason, but I would encourage everybody like experience as many different cultures as you can. I had a wonderful leader early on in my career at Fidelity named Surinder Singh. And he told me like, Go as many different places in the world as you can. Try as many new things as you can. All of these experiences add to the sum total person that you are. And I view changing jobs and changing workplaces as much a part of that as trying any new adventure, whether it's moving where you live, eating different foods, listening to different media. I just try to consume a very, very wide variety in my diet of experiences. Yeah. I mean, I think that openness, right, to new experiences in whatever form they take, right? Food, travel, places you live, places you work, team cultures. Some of it will work. Some of it won't work, but it all kind of helps blend into what you take with you in the rest of your life. And there's been situations, I mean, I was at McKinsey for a, a while and the one benefit of being in consulting world is you're constantly moving from one project to another. And there were some companies that I really didn't like working with. And there were some I loved working with. There were some project managers I liked and didn't like. But the thing is, you learn from all of that, right? You learn what matters. It comes back to your, what's really important to me? What will I tolerate? What was a deal breaker? And all of that kind of feeds in and helps you really crystallize that more and more as you continue through your career. And the only way to do that is to see different things. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that's what keeps life interesting. It's what keeps us engaged and in my opinion, is what keeps us young. Yeah, I agree. So I know you're a student of leadership and career development. Who have been big influences for you in terms of leaders that you've worked with or people even maybe that you haven't worked with so much that you admire? Well, you are one of them. Okay, we're editing that part out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you are one of them. And I look at what you're doing now. You have a high responsibility, high visibility role at an established firm. You have this business that you've created out of your passion that's become, I would think, more than just a side hustle. It's really meaningful for people in the world. Look, I don't think it's just leaders that I've learned the most from. I actually think that you can learn from everybody above you, beside you, below you. I haven't met a person on this planet that I haven't been able to learn something from. 
some of the people I've learned the most from are my kids. They're navigating a world and an economy and a landscape and a climate that's totally different than what you or I navigated when we were emerging out of college and starting our careers. So I tend not to think of like big luminary names. Obviously, I read a ton. The practitioners like Daniel Pink, the practitioners like Adam Grant, the practitioners like Liz Weissman and her work on multipliers, like certain things have stuck with me in the art of leadership. But I really just try to be on the lookout for like, if there's a restaurant that I go to that I really, really like, sometimes I'll ask to talk to the floor manager and say, you have an amazing team. What's your secret? I went through a drive through at McDonald's here in Fort Worth recently, and they actually had a bunch of service team members in the parking lot servicing cars at the window. And I'd never seen McDonald's do that before. And I said, what are you doing? They said, we learned it from Chick-fil-A. So just if you're a student of leadership, you keep your eyes open and wherever you see goodness, ask questions, find the person responsible for that and ask them what inspired them. That's really more my methodology than having certain people I follow or principles that I adhere to. How would you describe your own style at this point in your career? Ever evolving. I would say my style is a combination of curiosity, empathy, and high standards of excellence. There is a leader that I worked for at Fidelity for a number of years named Andrew Tappe, and he taught me something so simple. He said, there's three questions that you want your teams to be able to say yes to when somebody asks them about you. Do you care about your team? Can they trust you? And are you committed to excellence? So Mm. I would say my leadership style is always striving to get a yes on those three things. And I do it by spending time with people, getting to know them, being super, super clear on expectations both ways. And my one-on-ones with my new team this week, I said, I want to hear about what you need to feel supported and challenged by me. What does that look like for you? How does that work for you? So lots and lots and lots of context and clarity around expectations and then constant communication, just constant communication. What am I thinking? What am I doing? What am I worried about? And I want that back two ways. What do you see as the most important decisions that you make as a leader? Get the people on the team. Do I have the right Mm. people in the right seats facing off with the right work? That's what it's all about every day. And what do you look for when you hire people into roles? I'm not really good at hiring people. What I've learned is I can be a good interviewer. I can ask great questions, but I don't necessarily form great judgment about people quickly. And I learned that about myself early on from building teams that weren't so high performing and didn't work so Mm -hmm. well. So when I'm interviewing, I'm looking very carefully at who else is on the interviewing committee. And how are we going to make a decision? And what I try to suss out isn't, can I find the best candidates? It's, can I find the best people to complement what I don't know and what I lack in judgment? And then I try to build really good interviewing teams. I think so much of interviewing as I've seen it, people go into the interviews, the interviewers go into the interviews, not really prepared. If there's four or five people interviewing a candidate, they haven't really thought about what they're each going to focus on. So they end up repeating and force the candidate to repeat some of the same answers and multiple discussions. And then the feedback is, did you like the person or not? Yes or no. And you get maybe like a one or two sentence description. That's a lot of hiring, right? And that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, No. I spend a lot of time on the process 
that I want to execute when I'm hiring somebody. So I think about who's going to join me in the process. Then we build the interview guide and we actually assign the sections with the questions to each person on the interviewing team. And then we have a scoring sheet, right? And I want everybody when they are done interviewing to score right then and there. And then I want a neutral party to collate all of those scores and the numbers don't lie. You've got to go with the person that ranks out at the top overall of that process, even if they're not your favorite candidate. When I follow that process, I'm rarely let down by the result. I mean, certainly a lot of that came into play, has come into play in the sort of wake of a renewed increased focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, because those processes, like you just described, will help reduce unconscious bias, right? Asking the same questions of all the candidates, having a regimented process and scoring, but that's not a lot of hiring still. So there's clearly a lot of work to do that will help people make better hires, because I think a lot of people feel like they don't do a great job of hiring. Yeah. You think it's something you're good at if you're good at talking to people, but we have terrible judgment about each other. We really do. Yeah. Well, it's funny sometimes, and I'm sure you have this with your spouse or with your friends or with your kids or whoever, somebody will see something that you miss, right? Mm -hmm. And they'll have somebody pegged, right? One way or another. And somebody else is like completely blinded by some other aspect of that person and only discovers this attribute of them more slowly. And it's just, it's interesting how we all uniquely kind of pick up on those cues, which goes back to like why you should form a panel of interviewers that's actually pretty different. Absolutely. There are two things I love to do in interviews. I love to ask people like, what's a piece of work you're super proud of? And could you share a version of that with us? So like sanitize it, take out proprietary information. But if you're really proud of a piece of work, show it to me. So I can judge something beyond how you answer questions in the interview. And then I got a question in my interview process at LPL that I loved and I'm going to use, which is what makes you interesting? And that's a great way of getting to the total person and seeing what people are willing to share and how much of themselves are they going to invest in the job? Yeah, it's a good question. A little bit of a non-direct one, right? An indirect one, a non-traditional one, but sometimes we'll reveal things that you might otherwise get to. We talked a little bit about careers. You've taken a bunch of steps in the course of yours. What are your thoughts on what people get right and wrong in managing their careers? Well, I can share what I've learned from my own mistakes. If you're thinking your career is about getting to a certain level or getting a promotion, you're typically not going to be set up for success. And if you're trying to construct a straight line, right, connect the dot from here to here to here, I think rarely do careers evolve that way. I don't think they ever really did. I think there's a few areas, very technical, deep subject matter expertise, where the line is pretty straight from point A to point B, the bottom of the ladder to the top. But most careers are much more of like a rock climb where you even sometimes have to take not only steps sideways, but steps down to get to the better vantage point. So a lot of times people will come to me and what they're asking for is, how do I get to VP level or how do I get to director level? And I say like, why is that important to you? Is it because you want to make more money? Is it because you want to have more responsibility? Is it because you want to manage a large team instead of a small team? Like, let's pick away at why that title or that level on an org chart matters to you. And then let's think about how do you really get more of that, which may or may not come with the title. That's really where I see people tend to go down blind alleys when it comes to managing their careers. They're pursuing something without really understanding what they want or why they want it. 
Or I feel like a lot of people just don't really put the thought and time into it. And which I find sort of ironic given how much time we all spend working. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people, I don't want you to have a big job. I want you to have a big life. And so figure out how work, what does that mean in the picture of your life? We always think about it in context of like checking a box on the level and the paycheck, but like, how do you think about it in terms of what does work mean to you in the scope of your total life? And then what are you going to go after because of that? Which is a good way to think about it. It's thinking about the whole person, right? Your whole sort of work and personal life in an integrated way. You must do a a decent amount of mentoring, whether formal or informal. I I think when we all get to the point in our careers where people look at us and say, you've been around a while. Yeah. What are you hearing from people? What are some of the topics that they most often come to you for help with? They almost always start with, I want to get promoted. How do I do it? And what I have to disabuse people of is, or they'll say, you speak so well, or you write so well, it must come naturally to you. And I have to disabuse them of that notion really quickly. Like I have to practice my skills and continue to invest in my skills all the time. Nothing comes naturally or easy to me. So, you know, the trick is making it look easy. So it's those two things. How do I get promoted or how do I become good at X? And there's two myths I feel like people have bought into that I try to disavow. One of them is you have to promote yourself, right? You have to invest in yourself. You have to lead your own career and you have to promote yourself before anybody else is going to promote you. And what I mean by that is if you want to manage money, well, you better go learn about it, read about it, try it out on your own with your own money, shadow people, use your vacation time to travel to investor conferences and listen in, buy your own ticket. Like you got to invest in yourself and promote yourself and be ready before anybody else is going to give it to you. And people are often shocked that it takes that much work and time and energy. I ask people like, how much money do you budget for your physical fitness? And do you budget the same amount for your career fitness? Because you got to spend your own money. And then the second thing is this idea that like, well, some people are just naturally good at it. Very few people are naturally good at professional skills. Most of us have to work at it. So what are you willing to do and how much are you going to continue to invest and be disciplined to stay good at something? Would you describe yourself as having a high degree of discipline? I used to have a little bit less nowadays. Work has changed so much. I'm taking this call from the kitchen of an Airbnb and my offices are scattered around the country. It's harder for me to be disciplined in this much more flexible working model. But am I disciplined when it comes to focusing on my skills, keeping up my reading, staying abreast of my industry and asking for feedback? Yes, I'm absolutely disciplined in those things. And are those the things, the reading, the practicing, what other habits have helped you throughout your career? A reading in my mind is the highest ROI impact activity you can get. Like, and I use my library card. I will not buy a book unless my local library can't get it for me on time. Like it's absolutely free. It's amazing benefit of living in this country and in this world. So I spend a lot of time reading and I'm actually strategic about it. So right now I'm reading a book on the history of Iran because I'm realizing so much that's influencing our lives, both personally and professionally is happening in that part of the world. Iran seems to be at the genesis of it. And I have no context for understanding the history of that country versus what I'm seeing and perceiving today. So this month, I feel is a little bit, I'm acclimating to my new role. I'm learning a lot there. So I'm not reading a business book. 
I'm reading yeah. a book that's going to give me context for understanding current events in the world, which are going to impact my business. But in February and March, I'm going to be reading the latest research on strategy and leadership development, because I'm going to be putting some stakes in the ground at the end of my 90 days on areas of right. my business that I want to transform. So you can pick out the patterns of how your work is flowing, and then you can be strategic about where you're investing your time. The other thing I do is I invest in coaches. So I worked with an amazing coach over the last nine months. I hired her and paid for her myself because I knew I was going to be making some big career decisions. And I knew I was likely going to be creating this sabbatical for myself. And I didn't have the courage to do it unaided. So I hired a coach who I knew would really challenge me with questions about who am I and what do I want? But I invested a lot in that. So I'm not going to be hiring a coach probably over this next year, but that will come back into the fold in 2025. I will set aside some capital and hire a personal coach, but I need to wait until I have clarity on what do I want to be coached on. Yeah, I think you hit these points where it ebbs and flows, right? You, Where you need, where you really want that kind of intense relationship with working relationship with a coach because you're going through some period of change or you're stepping into a broader role or new job or whatever the case may be. And then there's other times you feel like I got this for a while, right? I can kind of go a little bit on my own and then kind of draw learnings and then use that to take back to the next intensive period. Similar to you as well. I learned this later in life, not until my mid forties, I need a physical challenge. I need to push my limits in a physical way. So every year I pick a domain that I'm not experienced at or I'm not performing at physically. What I've learned about myself is when I can learn how to push my physical limits, it automatically expands my mental limits. So one year it was hiking and I have a tremendous fear of heights and I decided to take on some really tough peaks and do a really big endurance hiking challenge. This year it's yoga. Yoga is like a journey of discovery. Like what can you do and what does it feel like to do things that are very uncomfortable And I wanted to get better at sitting in discomfort because I was taking this sabbatical and I wasn't going to be working and it was going to be very uncomfortable. So I find having a physical practice complements the mental and leadership journey very, very well. I wish I had discovered that sooner in my career. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that's always been a part of things. I mean, I was doing triathlons when I was in my twenties and then did a lot of cycling and then entertain the idea of going back to triathlons and that didn't really work out. So I had started the hiking and I've been doing the hiking and then I've come back to running, as you know, over the last few years. Mm And I mean, it's work to fit in the runs, but it also, I feel better. Like I have more energy through the day when I've gotten up and doing, done a run that morning, even though it's meant, you know, especially this time of year going out and running in the dark and in the cold. And so there is definitely a bit of sacrifice. It's not always like Mm -hmm. throwing your t-shirt and your shorts and go out for a run on a nice 75 degree day. But it's just that challenge. And just even the focusing mechanism of signing myself up for events, it kind of helps keep me centered more generally than just in my case, specific to the road race or whatever that I've got coming up. Yeah. You learn so much about yourself. Do I have what it takes to do it in the dark and the cold? And do I have what it takes to hit the mat at the end of a long day when I'm already tired? It's making a promise to yourself and not breaking it. And that translates to leadership on much bigger scales. Well, I think many of us never really completely figure out what we're capable of, right? And whether you do that in a physical sense or a mental sense or whatever sense, 
you learn a lot about yourself from those experiences. You learn from your failures. You learn from places where, as you mentioned earlier, where you're way out of your comfort zone. And over time, right, it goes back to like the lived experiences point you were making earlier. It's like your worldview, right? Your lived experience continues to expand. Your comfort zone continues to expand the more that you push yourself into new things. And so whatever form it takes, yoga, hiking, running, whatever, it's good to have those things. And it also gives you something to look forward to when you're outside of work. Absolutely. Last question, I guess, if you had to go back and give advice to your 22-year-old fresh out of college self, what would you tell her? I'd tell her to lighten up. I would tell her that everything always works out in the end. And the secret is really, really have a good relationship with yourself first. I took things really seriously. I felt like there were a lot of check marks I had to put on the board. I had some big financial challenges starting out without any resources. And I took everything too seriously. Some Mm. might say, well, that served you well. You were intense, but it accelerated your career. I think I missed out on a lot. I think I could have accomplished and be sitting where I am today and had a little bit more fun and been a little kinder to myself. So that's what I try to tell everybody is it's all going to be all right in the end where people were here on this planet to love each other and take care of each other. And that starts with doing that for ourselves first. And it's okay to laugh a little, just lighten up. That's what I would tell her. And that on my worst days, I've gotten in my own way because I've been taking myself too seriously. We can definitely do that. I think particularly if you're if you're ambitious, if you want to make the most out of your professional life or life in general, you get very sort of blinders on, overly focused on things, sometimes at the expense of other things that really matter and or what matters to you, right? That you maybe haven't discovered. So good That's advice. Right. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. It was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for everything you're doing with Pathwise. I I turn to it as one of my go-to resources, and I've picked up a lot of my reading through what you've published. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, hopefully the book summaries and some of the other things are useful. So yeah, thanks for, for that. Sure. All right. All right. Take care. Well, good luck. Happy holidays. Yeah. Good luck with things. Yeah. Thank you as well. You. I want to thank Amy for joining me today to cover her new role, her broader career journey, and her thoughts on leadership and careers, and what's helped make her successful. If you'd like to make the most of your career, visit pathwise.io. You can become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.